Stay with us following this week's Crosswalk for information on Pastor Clay's new book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus, this is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. If you can find the fine print in God's Word that lets you out of this one, then by all means show it to me. But this is what I find on the pages of God's Word. Go make disciples. Expectations, they are a regular part of our life. In your workplace, your employer has an expectation that you will produce a certain level of work. You have an expectation that you'll be paid a certain amount of money for the level of work performed. If you're married, you probably have some expectations for your spouse. We have expectations, at least at the beginning of a season, as to how our favorite team will perform. Everyone has expectations about something, but what about God? Does God have expectations for us? If you're a part of the family of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, there are expectations of fruit in our lives as children of God. I'm Rick Freeman. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Mark as Pastor Clay takes us to Mark chapter 11 and a very curious account of Jesus cursing a fig tree. Jesus was on his way back to Jerusalem in the last week of his life, but along the way, he walks over to a fig tree, finds no fruit on it, and curses it. Why would Jesus do that? Is there more to the story than we can initially realize? Probably. If it doesn't matter to me that people without Christ will die and spend eternity in hell, if that does not burden your heart for those without Christ, we've got a problem. Let's dig into God's Word today as Pastor Clay explores the biblical concept of God's expectations for those who claim His name. Now, here's Pastor Clay. How many of you have, uh, how many have been to the fair already? Yeah, a few? Yeah, not too many. How many, of you are, how many of you are going to the fair later? Some of you are probably going maybe this afternoon. Beautiful weather day. It'd be a good day to go. So, yeah, fair. Uh, a lot of y'all, you fans of the fair? You like going to the state fair and, or county fairs or whatever else? Yeah, I, I've told, this, this is the truth. My family knows this. I'd rather be kicked in the behind by a bull than go to the fair. I, I, I don't know what it is. It's just... You know, uh, I mean, even when I could walk, I felt that way. It was the crowds and the, and the whatever. One thing, sure, when you go to the fair, there's, there's certain things that you can expect, right? And you probably go there with some expectations when you go to the fair, right? You, you expect for the traffic to be disastrous, crazy, right? You expect there to be long lines uh, for the rides that your kids insist on you riding or that you like to ride or, or whatever, right? That's an expectation, um, you expect to spend some money, right? You're going to spend money at, at, at the fair trying to win that little doll? <laughs> I don't know. Get that ring around that duck's head or something. It's knock them bottles over. How can them bottles be that hard to, to knock over? That's what I want to know. Yeah, really? How, how, can, how can it be that hard to knock over? <laughs> and, and you expect to eat something fried, right? If you... I mean, at the state, at state fair, there's something. What was, I heard, uh, they, they said, I forget now, well, like what the, the latest, this, you know, every year they try and top the latest fried something. Somebody tell me what's like one of the really, what? Fried bubble gum. That is crazy. <clears throat> fried Oreos, those are classics. I, I heard it was like, uh, this year they're like ramping it up with the, fried Twinkie. They're like wrapping it in bacon and frying it or something. Yeah, so. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, it's just, you can just expect some of that stuff when you go. Hey, I want to talk about some some expectations today, some expectations that uh, God has had and and that God has. I'll be honest with you, and I'm catching back up to where uh, some of the other staff members had, had preached through the rest of chapter 10 and uh, chapter 11. And, and in chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 10, uh, Ivy, I believe, was the last uh, pastor that, that preached. And, and chapter 11, 
uh, is that great uh, triumphal entry story, right? I've been telling you this, that there's 16 chapters in the book of Mark, but when we get to chapter 11, it's the last week of Jesus' life. So the whole rest of the book uh, is covering one week of Jesus' life. And in chapter 11, verse 1 through 10, is, is that, that event that's known as this great triumphal entry where the people, you know, that there's been a buzz, there's been an excitement. Uh, they've heard about Jesus of Nazareth. He's been out, and, we, and we, we've seen this in the, in the study. He, most of his ministry has taken place up in the northern part of Israel, what's called the Galilee region, but not all of it. He's traveled out of that. He's traveled back down south to the Jerusalem area uh, some, but most of it's taken place north. But they, they've heard about it. They've heard about all this stuff that's going on. On. And the questions have been asked, you know, could this be the Messiah? And if you don't know it, that word Messiah uh, it, it is, for the Jews, it meant the, the Savior, the Deliverer, the one who was finally going to set them free, which they thought that meant a military commander who would set them free from oppression, set them free from, from uh, occupying nations like the Romans and, and all that, that kind of stuff. That was their interpretation in their mind of what the Messiah was going to do. They had missed it. They'd missed that interpretation uh, because uh, God had made it clear that the Messiah was going to set them and ultimately any of us free from something far greater than, than the occupation of, a, of a, uh, another nation, but to set us free from our own sin that we were guilty of. So, uh, so Jesus is coming into town and there's lots of buzz and they're like, whoa, yeah, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the Messiah. And the, the crowd kind of gets worked up into a frenzy and as Jesus comes down uh, or comes up to Jerusalem, he, he traveling down the road and the people begin to break out and, and I'm not trying to repeat all of that. I know you read that a number of weeks ago, but they're just shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, uh, which was kind of, this was, that was a messianic kind of thing that, that that would be shouted when the Messiah came and all that kind of, so there's a great bit of expectation on the part of the people for this, this Jesus of Nazareth and what he was going to be done. Let's I started to say, I had all these expectations on my own self that I was going to work through verses 11 through 26 because there's, there's a bunch of these, uh, sh- what, what I would call uh, action events, which we've seen throughout the book of Mark, and each one of them become kind of their own uh, teaching uh, event through it. Uh, this is the last week of Jesus' life. He knows that. He's predicted it. He's told his disciples on numerous occasions, going up to Jerusalem, going to be uh, betrayed, going to be arrested by the religious leaders. They're going to put me to death. He knows what's happening. And so this last week of his life is very important to, to what he's going to say and, and do uh, for the people, but, but also for his disciples in particular. And this morning, I want to talk to you uh, just really on just one of the ideas, and we'll look at the other three uh, next week, but on God's expectation of fruit. If you have your Bible with you, please open it to uh, Mark chapter 11 and, uh, and verse 11. And we're going to read just really 11 through 14. Uh, listen, listen to what happens. Now, it was a few weeks ago that you read verses 1 through 10, if you were here, but it's that triumphal entry. Uh, it ends, let me just read verse 10. It ends with this, Blessed is, is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. I mean, they are excited. Verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Father, uh, today as we look at really just a very short uh, passage of, of Scripture, uh, I'm asking uh, and, and praying uh, and believing that you, uh, your spirit, would just speak into our hearts and lives uh, the truth of even this, uh, this seemingly strange story of Jesus cursing uh, the fig tree. I ask that our hearts would be open, our spirits, and that right now each person in here, each person who may listen to this message uh, would be saying, 
uh, Father, teach me. What can I learn from this story that I can apply uh, to my life? Uh, Father, may you be honored and glorified, and we're so grateful for this time to be here, so grateful to sing praises unto your name. So many gifted people that sing and play instruments and and operate the the technical aspect of it and all those who give sacrificially to set up and and uh, make make everything possible when we come in here we have a, a great setting that that I think is is conducive to worship and to listening we have a air conditioning and and heated uh, building at least it's air conditioned heat at most times, Lord, and we have we have comfortable seats uh, to sit in, and, and we have lights that that are operating this week. We have much to be grateful for, much that we often can take for granted. But but whether we have all of that or none of that, we still have your word. And as we open it today, and as I have the privilege of being your messenger boy to your people today, may you uh, make application straight to the heart of each and every person. Maybe there's a teenager in this room. Maybe there's an adult in this room. Maybe there's a child in this room. Maybe there's a, a senior adult, some person, something that, that this message can really uh, speak to their hearts. Uh, I've asked you, and I, I believe that, that you've spoken into my heart uh, as I've been preparing this message, work on it, reminding me of the truth uh, from the cursing of the fig tree and Lord, uh, as a result of it, and, and, and even next week as we look at more of those teaching lessons, uh, these really are, uh, in my opinion, very practical, uh, down-to-earth, uh, this is part of being a follower of Jesus kind of teaching. And so uh, make application uh, in our lives and be glorified through it. Thank you so much, so much for the privilege of having your word in our hands, for the people who have come in here today. There's not a person uh, in this room today that uh, was coerced by a, uh, a government official or kept out by a government official or uh, restricted by some cultural thing. They've come in here uh, freely. And so freely, Lord God, may they receive the truth of your word. And I ask it in the strong name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. God's expectation of fruit. Okay, so just set this back over here a second. So Mark, in, in typical Mark fashion, he, re, he records this, uh, this seemingly insignificant fact. Uh, and if it's in the Word of God, I, you know, maybe I'll get in line in heaven someday and ask, you know, why is that? In, <laughs> why did Mark record that? But Mark records this uh, the, the fact that when Jesus experiences triumphal entry, everybody's cheering, everybody's shouting, all this kind of stuff. He, so he comes on in Jerusalem, uh, but it's near the end of the day. Uh, and so he just goes up to, to what's called Temple Mount. He goes to the area where the temple is. He, he looks around, he kind of surveys the area, sees what all's going on. And he turns around and goes right back out of the city. <laughs> and he goes and spends the night in Bethany, which is basically a, a suburb of Jerusalem. So he goes out back out to Bethany. Why Mark tells us that he looks around and heads back out, I don't know, except that maybe it's telling us that Jesus is acutely aware of, uh, of what's happening in the hearts of the people and that sort of thing. But the next morning, he gets up, he and his disciples, and they're going back into Jerusalem. It's, it's the Passover season. And you have to understand, it's the Passover season, hundreds of thousands, in some cases, maybe close to millions of people, but it's certainly hundreds of thousands of people are coming to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was a, a good-sized city just during its normal time. Uh, it, it, was, it was a city of, of a couple hundred thousand people anyway. I don't know the exact size, but it, it wasn't just a small, sleepy little town. Jerusalem was a big city. It had, this, you know, had grand buildings and that sort of thing. But during Passover, uh, Jews from all over the world. And remember, Jews were scattered all over the world. They, they had, because of what's called the diaspora, they had, they, they had, they had been scattered during the time when, when way back, it's, it's a long story, but, but Jerusalem had fallen, the, the, the nation of Israel had, had fallen, they'd been carried off by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom by the, by the Babylonians, and, and they'd been... They'd been taken all over the world because that was part of the custom of uh, conquering nations that they would take away the many of the people the best and the brightest so that there wouldn't be any uprising or things like that and so the Jews have been scattered really all around certainly all around the Mediterranean uh, in Rome and in Ephesus and through the Greek area all, all over the place 
But a, Jew, a good Jew knew that still they held on to their beliefs, they held on to their traditions, they held on to what they had read, and part of that was the idea of Passover, the celebration of that, that historic event where God had set the people free uh, from bondage in Egypt. You remember that story from your Sunday school class or something? Uh, maybe years ago, if you grew up in church, uh, God brought the people out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And, the, and on the last night when the Pharaoh kept refusing to let them go, on the last night, the last plague, the death angel came and struck down the firstborn. And the death angel passed over the people of Israel when they demonstrated their faith by, by placing the blood of a sacrifice on the, on the doorpost. And it was very symbolic of what Christ did for us. But it, it communicated uh, to them this idea that God was protecting them and God passed over them. And so they came out that night. Well, now for, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jews have been celebrating that. And so that's what that event was. They're coming back to Jerusalem for Passover because that's what they were supposed, if at all possible, they were to go back to Jerusalem for Passover. So the city is, is bulging with people, <clears throat> which is, explains why Jesus didn't say in Jerusalem. The problem. I'm sure there was no rooms, there was no anything. goes back out to Bethany. In the morning, they get up, and uh, they're heading back to Jerusalem, and the, and the text uh, says that Jesus was hungry. And seeing a fig tree at a distance, he goes over to it, and he finds no fruit on it. And we have this very, as I said, odd, peculiar story. What seems odd to us that Jesus curses this fig tree. And one of the things that seems odd to us is the fact that the text specifically tells us in verse 13 that it was not the season for figs, right? Y'all read that? In other words, it was not the normal season when figs would be produced on the tree. Now, I am not a, a horticulturalist. I am not a fig tree grower. I don't know if any of you are, and I don't know how it would vary between here and and the Mideast, but in my research, from what I understand, the fig trees in Israel would uh, produce a crop of figs uh, at least twice a year, and many times three times a year. Uh, The normal first crop would be somewhere around June. The second crop would be somewhere around August. And then many times there would be a third crop somewhere around December. Well, in this account, Mark's account, it's early spring. It's Passover season. So it's not the normal time for figs to be on the tree. But the text also tells us that Jesus, seeing the tree, and the phrase that's used is in leaf, seeing the tree in leaf goes over to it again i'm not a, you know an expert on this but it's as, as i research it today it's my understanding that that the leaves would normally begin to bud out in association with the first fruit that the that the the bud that produces the fruit however all that works and some of y'all know how that works that there that would that would be either just prior to or at the same time that the tree began to leaf out. The text seems to indicate that this tree is in full leaf. And so, here's what I'm saying. It would not be a far-fetched expectation on Jesus' part to think that he would find fruit on that tree. Since from a distance it was leafed out, perhaps there is fruit on it. Now, the fruit might not be ripe yet, or fully ripe, or whatever, but it would not be that much of a stretch to think, off in the distance, and the text specifically tells us that at a distance, seeing this tree leafed out, he goes over to find fruit on it. Now, here's what most of us probably don't know, but most of the people back then should have and probably did know. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, The fig tree is used figuratively, symbolically, to represent the nation of Israel. You may not, may or may not have known that. It's okay, no points off if you didn't know that. It's it's used figuratively to represent the nation of Israel. For instance, in in Jeremiah uh, chapter 8, Jeremiah is condemning 
uh, the nation of Judah, the southern part of, the, of Israel. He's condemning them because they've turned their backs on God. And he gives a prediction of what's going to happen to them. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, it says, I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the tree, and the leaf will wither, and what I have given them will pass away. In the book of Hosea, in, in Hosea chapter 9, God speaking through the prophet Hosea chapter 9 verse 10 says this. He says, I found Israel. And God, he's talking about that, how he started this whole thing with this nation of Israel. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. And they became as detestable as that which they loved. Baal Peor was a, a false god that the Moabites, one of the surrounding peoples, the nation of Israel, the, that the Moabites worshipped. And the, the worship of Baal Peor in, involved some very uh, crude, some very uh, sexual type of acts uh, in the worship of Baal Peor. Unfortunately, some of the Israelites had begun to join the Moabites in the worship of Baal Peor. And so, this, what we find, what I'm getting to, we're trying to get to in this, is that Jesus knows this is the last week of his life, right? He knows he's headed for the cross. No, no, no surprises on, on his part. He's been trying to teach this to his disciples. And so he's acutely aware of every teaching moment and every teaching opportunity that he has, I believe, with his disciples. And so, symbolically speaking, the cursing of the fig tree represents Israel's failure. It represents Israel's failure to, to, to be the nation that God expected them to be. The cursing of the fig tree is the failure of the nation of Israel. It symbolically represents that. Remember, in less than a week, they are going to reject their Messiah and nail him to a cross. Israel had failed to live up to the expectations that God had for their life. Now, there's probably lots of things that we could say, lots of things we could talk about, you know, ways that that as a nation they may have failed, but but at least two ideas stick out in my mind that that are really important to consider when we talk about the failure of this nation. The first one is this. The, The first failure was this. There was a failure to communicate God's message. Remember, from the very beginning, God's intention was that Israel would be a chosen nation, not so that they could say, woohoo, look at us, we're chosen, we're really special, woo. No, chosen so that they could be a light to the Gentiles, to to the other nations, so that they could communicate the message that God had for all the nations. Not just the nation of Israel, but the, the that what God wanted for all the nations, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 and in this Abrahamic covenant where God calls Abraham out in Genesis chapter 12, it says, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Israel had failed at that. They had failed to communicate the message that God wanted them to communicate. And the message included the fact that, that nations... In, meaning the peoples of the world had sinned and they had, that sin had separated them from God and that they were under God's condemnation because of that sin. But the message, as you know, didn't end there. The message also spoke of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy that extended to all the nations that would choose to, to come to believe in them. And listen, I don't know. I don't know whether it was pride or arrogance or laziness or just disdain for the other nations or or whatever whatever the reasons were Israel failed to communicate the message by and large they basically focused on themselves and like the fig tree they probably looked pretty good at a distance, spiritually speaking. They, they probably looked pretty healthy. They had, they, had, they had their Sabbaths. They had their festivals, right? They had their temple that worshiped the one true God. They had their sacrifices that the people offered up. 
They had the word of God and the, and the truth of God's word, but listen to me, there was no fruit. There was no fruit in the nation. Now, Israel had times historically where they would, where they would turn back to God and a, a good leader would, would rise up, a good king, or the prophets would come along and, and they would try and turn them back to God and, and Israel would do that from time to time. But by and large, in the meta-narrative, in the big story, Israel failed to communicate the message that God desired for them to communicate. And there, there was a second way that Israel failed. Not only did they fail to communicate God's message, but second, there was a failure to separate from the world. Leviticus uh, chapter uh, 15, I think it is, uh, 11, I'm sorry. Leviticus chapter 11, for I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel. Now y'all hang on, I'm I'm gonna bring this back to us in a minute, okay? I, I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, thus you shall be, say that word with me, holy, For I am, why? Holy. I'm the Lord God who brought you up out of Egypt. I'm the one that did this. You didn't set yourselves free. I'm the one that worked this. I'm the one that did this. I'm taking you into this land. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. He says the same thing in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse two. He says the same thing again in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse seven. It is this call to to come out, this call to distinction, this call to be separate from the nations uh, around you. Do you understand? Now listen to me. The nation of Israel, the people of Israel, they weren't perfect. Nobody is. Uh, I, I don't think, the call to holiness is, has never meant or had this distinction of, of the, the fact that you were going to be sinless. But it was a call to come apart from the from the pagan practices of the nations around them who were worshiping anything and everything except the one true God and who were living their lives in a, in a manner, in a fashion, in a style, how, whatever, however you want to say it, that was not in keeping with God's expectations for their lives. Do you understand? They failed to come out, to separate themselves from the world around them. Instead, they did just the opposite. They just began to blend in. They began to look. Again, like the fig tree, they still had their leaves. They still had their semblance of looking spiritually healthy. They had their religious practices, but the fruit was not there. Um, some of you have been through this, uh, been through something like this in your life, but I, I'm, I'm going through physical therapy right now, uh, you know, rehabbing my leg and and my shoulder, and uh, the, the young man, uh, Sandy, comes twice a week. He comes Tuesdays and Fridays, and, um, and nearly kills me uh, in, in physical therapy. And I was going to say, some of you have been, if you've been through physical therapy, you know, on a major trauma thing or something like that, I'm sure you can relate to this, but um, other than the pain of the wreck and the pain after the surgeries and that kind of stuff when I was in the hospital, uh, the, the pain that this man brings into my life during the rehab is unlike anything I've, uh, it's, it's worse, other than those things, it's worse than anything I've ever experienced in my life. My, my dear sweet wife snapped a picture of my face the other day in the midst of excruciating pain. Uh, I'm sure she wanted to post it to Facebook, but I think she, she thought better of it. You didn't post it to Facebook, did you? Okay. It's awful. It is awful. Uh, and I, you know, I don't consider myself, I don't know how you gauge that against other people, but I don't consider myself necessarily a, a wimp with my pain threshold. But I shout, man. <laughs> I shout, uh, scream, whatever, during, during some of those times where he's working my knee and that kind of stuff. But here's the deal. There is an expectation that fruit will be born from this right? There is an expectation that I will walk. There is an expectation that I will run, that I will be able to do things with my shoulder and all that kind of stuff. And if there's not, if, if after X amount of time, there's no fruit, there's no, my, my leg is still just as frozen up, my shoulders, then, then me and Sandy are going to have a come to Jesus meeting. <laughs> because there's, a, there's a, an expectation that fruit is going to come from from this. God had an expectation for the nation of Israel. And they were looking the part, but they simply were not producing the fruit. Okay, let, let's see how we, how we bring this 
to us? What's, what's the application for us, right? Well, here it is. Let me, let me just cut to the chase. As, as if you're a part of the family of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, there are expectations of fruit in our lives as children of God. What are those expectations? Well, again, we might could, you know, break it down to minute detail. We might could talk about a lot of things or whatever, but I can think of at least two expectations of fruit that God has for our lives. You want to guess what the first one is? There is an expectation that we will communicate God's message. Well, gee, that sounds familiar. And I'm not even Jewish. It's the same thing, folks. It's the people of God communicating the message of God to the people that desperately need to know the love of God. And I, listen, I'm not, and this is technical, and I don't mean to go too much down this rabbit hole, but I'm, I'm not preaching a, a, a replacement theology here. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't believe that the church replaced Israel. I, I believe that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. We're going to see that in the latter days and in the, in the end times and it's going to, you know, all that. So I'm not saying that, that we replaced, but the church, uh, when it was birthed, brought with it this expectation from God that we then would, would take this message uh, to the world around us. Right, but I know I know what I know what people say. Well, I, you know that that's that's just not that's just not me. You know I've got more of a shy personality, or or I'm just not so much of an outward kind of person. I I just kind of believe on I just kind of believe in kind of living it out, and you know it's not and I, I'm not really trained, and I don't really know if I'd know what to say about all of this. Listen, I, I I've heard all that. And I'm telling you right now, if you can find the fine print in God's word that lets you out of this one, then by all means, show it to me. But this is, this is what I find on the pages of God's word. Beginning Matthew chapter 28, you know this, many of you know this passage of scripture. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Somebody tell me what that next word is. Go, go. Many pastors like to point out that it's a, uh, the, the tense of, of the verb mean, literally means as you are going. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. You are his commissioned ones. If you're sitting here right now, look at me. If you're sitting here right now and you would say, I profess Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. When I, when I was... Uh, 13 years old or six months ago or whatever. if you would say I've trusted Jesus Christ my Savior I was, I'm a sinner I separated from God uh, Christ, I believe that Christ died for me I know I wasn't there it was 2,000 years ago but I believe Christ died for me and by faith I have asked him to forgive me of my sins and come into my life and be my Lord and Savior however that came out for you if you're here and you would say that th- this is you this is your commission. Oh, why not? Here's another one. Acts chapter 1. You probably read this one too. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my, what's that next word? Witnesses. You're his commissioned ones. You're his witnesses, both in Jer- Jerusalem. I tried to make a new word up. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That's, that's kind of, we take that verse here at Cross Culture and we kind of uh, paraphrase it to make it our, our mission statement. To go here, there, and everywhere with the message of Jesus. That's really the idea here. You're his commissioned ones. Commanded to go. You're his witnesses. One more. How about this one? In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore we are, say it, ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're his commissioned ones, we're his witnesses, and we are even his ambassadors. I feel like I need to wear a tie or something when when I think about that aspect of being an ambassador. That just sounds very official. Listen, we... That God has this expectation on our lives that we will communicate his, his message. All right, I'm going I'm to give you some application here in a minute, but let me, get, let me give you the, the second expectation here uh, this morning. 
there's an expectation that we would separate from the world. Well, that sure sounds like the Jews too. Yeah, yeah. Now listen to me. Let, let me say this. On the surface, I, I may sound like I just, I just contradicted myself. Someone's thinking, yeah, you did just contradict yourself, crazy, crazy preacher man. Because you just said I'm supposed to engage the world, and now you just told me I'm supposed to disengage from the world. Which is it? I confess that this, this, this idea of engaging the world and disengaging from the world is kind of a tricky idea. First, let's establish that we are called to, to be separate. We'll talk about perhaps what all that means, but let's, let's look at a few passages of Scripture. John uh, chapter 8, I think it is. John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Notice the distinction between walking with him and walking in the world, in, in the darkness, without his, his guidance. Uh, John chapter uh, 17, Jesus, what's called the high priestly prayer, where he's, he's praying to the Father. And he says, I've given them your word, and the world has what? Hated them. Why? Because you're not of the world. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. In other words, there's such a distinction between the world, meaning the world system, okay? The, world, the way the world thinks, the way the world operates, the way the world uh, lives and, and, and makes decisions, How about this one? This is uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed, do not be shaped into this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Look at the difference that he's he's drawing there. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. There's a distinction. There's There's a calling to come out and to be separate. Um. Do I have it? Yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Thanks, Tyler. Uh, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. See this case that Paul is building here? We're the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, what? Say it. Come out. Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord. Almighty. Listen, there's this, this distinction, this, this idea of being separate from the world. Like Israel, not better, not, you know, liked more by God, not perfect or sinless, but that there's a recognition that following Christ means following the teachings of Christ and, and the way he would observe that li- my life should be lived. And while the world, again, the, the thinking of the world or the, the world system or the voices of the world, those that might be in, a, in place of authority or considered what, that while they might say, well, it's okay to do this or you should do this or why don't you just do that, that I, that, that I would say, well, what does God say about my his expectations for my life and how that life is lived. Okay, real quickly, uh, let's see, I'm trying to help you. H- how do we bring those two together? You, you tell me I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to engage the world, communicate the message, and I'm supposed to disengage from the world. So h- how does that happen? How do, how do I make that a reality? If I'm, if I'm gonna do this, if I'm, if I'm gonna meet these expectations uh, that God has on my life, if I'm gonna see this fruit produced that he wants in my life, whether I'm a child, a teenager, adult, wherever I am in this. Let me give you some ideas real quick. Here we go. Um, First, carry God's burden. How do I do do that? How do I communicate the message because I'm scared or I'm afraid I don't know enough or I haven't been through enough classes or you gotta carry, I have to carry God's burden. I've shown you this passage, I'm sure, plenty of times before, but in the book of Ezekiel, uh, can I remind you what God says? Because we read so much about the, you know, God's judgment and all these things. Listen, do I have any pleasure, this is God speaking, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God. Rather, 
than that they should turn from their ways and live. Can I ask you, does, does that sound like a God who is cold and, and calculating and who sits in heaven and moves us around like pawns at, for his amusement because he just had nothing better to do with this, with a couple of millennial, millennium? Or does it sound like a God who actually cares about people in their condition? You know this verse. Why don't you just say it with me? John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do you think God cares? You and I have to, we have to carry God's burden. We got to care like God cares. One more Romans chapter 10. How then, you can tell, Paul's got this burden. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And preacher doesn't mean the guy that sits up here. It just means a proclaimer. It's any of us. How will they hear unless somebody proclaims to them? How will they preach or proclaim unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Listen, I've told people for years that evangelism, telling people the good news of Jesus is more caught than it is taught. And what I mean by that is all the techniques and the strategies through the years that have been, that have been taught, classes that have been offered on how to share your faith. I'm not saying that any of those things are bad, and believe me, I have been through most of them. I'm not saying necessarily that they're bad. I'm just saying they, they, it doesn't matter if I don't care. If, I, if it doesn't matter to me that people are going to, that people without Christ will die and spend eternity in hell, if that doesn't matter to me, if I don't have a burden for that, then it won't make any, I really don't think it'll make much difference. I don't think I'll be apt to open my mouth. Listen, if the Bible is real, and, and I don't say that as if I don't believe that it is. I have long ago settled the fact that I believe that the Bible in its, in its accuracy, in its validity, in its superiority to every other religion or belief system, to every other uh, idea of, of how the world was created, uh, to every idea uh, to, to why the very existence of man is here and what the meaning of life is. I've long since settled the fact that the Bible is absolutely true. But if the Bible is true, then it means that, because it teaches this, that someday God himself physically, literally speaking, in Christ Jesus is going to get up from his throne and he's going to literally return to this earth and he's going to establish his throne on this earth. Listen, look at it. Look at it. Matthew chapter 25. Can you be right? I hadn't read this passage in quite a while, to be honest with you. And it, again, just was very sobering to me as I, as I read through this. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory. You know, I love that. Not, but if the Son of Man comes in his glory... But maybe if the, no, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. But what if Richard Dawkins doesn't believe that? It doesn't matter. He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations, watch this, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And they listen, he's not, he's not being derogatory. He's just saying there's a distinction between those who have chosen him and those who have not. And then the king will say to those on his right, look at this. Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. If that does not burden your heart for those without Christ, we've got a problem. We've got to carry God's burden. It needs to matter to us. Second idea, not only to carry God's burden real quickly, but we have to care for God's name. 
This is the whole idea, not only of communicating his message, but, but separating from the world. We gotta care about God's name. In Acts chapter five, there's this great story where the disciples uh, have been arrested by the religious leaders and they have beaten them, but then they finally let them go. In Acts chapter five, it says this, look at this, it says, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You and I have to come to the place where, the, where God's name, where God's reputation, where God's will, where God's desires become more important than our own. And I, I, I'm not saying that flippantly. I know that's not easy. I know what my flesh wants. I know how it pulls at me to, to focus on me and, and all that kind of stuff. But when we get to the place where we're more concerned about what people think of God because of our actions than what they think of us, that's when we'll be on the right path, quite honestly. We have to care for God's name. Oh, I might be, oh, they might make fun of me. Oh, uh, they're gonna think I'm, I'm a religious fundamentalist because I, I believe what the, you understand what I'm saying? God, it's not about me. It's about your name. And then third, la- last one, uh, we have to be careful for God's enemies. Listen, it is foolish for you and me to think that this is not ultimately a spiritual battle that is going on here. That, there, that there's not an enemy, spiritual enemy known as Satan, the devil, various names, who is real and would desire to cause us to stumble, cause us to not communicate the message, cause us to not come out from the world system around us. In Ephesians chapter 6, we find these words, finally be strengthened in the Lord in the strength of his power. Clothe yourselves with the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the, what? Schemes of the devil. Do you think this is just, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand your ground on the evil day. And having done everything to stand, stand firm, therefore, by fastening the belt of truth around your waist, by putting on the breastplate of righteousness, by fitting your feet with preparation that comes from the good news of peace, and in all of this, taking up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Oh, I don't know, I'll just go out in the world and see what happens today. (laughs) There has to be preparation. There has to be a recognition that you have an enemy. Look at you, look at your, if you're here and you're married, look at your spouse. Look at them. If you're here and you're with with a a child or a parent, look, look at them. And know that Satan would desire to destroy the person next to you. Destroy their spiritual life, destroy their their joy, steal the relationship that you have with them, anything, all of it, if he can. Why? Because because if he can, you're not a trophy of God's grace where people can look and say, wow, God's making a difference in their life. But instead, they, they see the victory that Satan has. Okay, um, Tyler, do I have any more to show him? Yeah, thank you. Um, okay, Give me the give me the James four four one because uh, I, I really wanted to bring that that up. See James four four there. Yeah, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Oh, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This we have to recognize that this is where we're going to be pulled with this enemy that's in us. And now back to the first Peter one, if you will. Stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. All right, well, I know I'm late, but I'm just saying to you that it's, it, is, it is the ultimate act of foolishness to think that your marriage is safe or your walk with Jesus is safe or your children are safe or you're whatever. It is the ultimate act of foolishness to think that you can just go about, live your life, do your thing, and give no consideration to the fact that there is a real enemy out there and he is seeking to destroy whatever he can. You have to be careful for God's enemies. God has an expectation of fruit. What about your own life? As we close out this morning, what about your own life? Think about it for a moment, okay? Forget about who's 
around you or forget about me or, or whatever, but just that idea of God's expectation of fruit in your life, where you are right now in your walk with Jesus, honestly, would you say that your life is manifesting, it's producing through the power of God, particularly those two aspects of fruit are being produced in your life. You are communicating God's message. Uh, not that we all get it right all the time. Not that we, and we all miss 100%. We don't all get 100% of the opportunity. We, we miss some of them, right? But when you say that your desire is to communicate God's message and you're trying to do that to your, your coworkers and neighbors and classmates and, and all that kind of thing, would you say your life is producing fruit or honestly, honestly, would you say, you know what? Truth is, I'm probably more like the fig tree. I, I, I got leaves. I may look the religious part, but there's no, not really any fruit in my life. Well, as we heard today, the nation of Israel failed to live up to some of the expectations that God had for that nation. Like the fig tree that Jesus cursed, the nation of Israel may have had the appearance of following God, but the truth was there was no fruit. They failed to communicate God's message to the lost world around them, and they failed to separate themselves from the godless cultures of the world. Rather than being an influence for good, they were influenced into sin. As Pastor Clay pointed out today, those two expectations are true for our lives today as followers of Jesus. In your life, are you striving to meet God's expectations on your life? We're glad you joined us for this week's Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their lives feel disconnected with the type of life and faith that they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting? If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback form from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Clay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy of I Get It today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where you'll find what you're looking for. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.